Jesus alive. Jesus coming forth from the tomb. Fascinating. Could it really be true? Did it really happen? Well, if it didn't, then Christianity is a sham. If it didn't happen, we're all wasting our times being here today. We should be out on a picnic. And that's not just my opinion. Even God's holy word, the Bible, declares that to be true. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, the Bible says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For over 2,000 years, Christians have joined together on this blessed day to celebrate our belief that Jesus Christ rose triumphantly from the grave, conquered death, hell, and the grave, and sacrificed himself for us that we might have eternal forgiveness of sin. However, as passionate as Christians are to accept that and to believe that, we must understand that there's an unbelieving world that holds an equal passion to dismiss it and to disclaim it. It's not really easy for them. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a biblical story. There's a lot of extra-biblical, non-biblical, historical evidence about the existence of Jesus Christ. They can't just say, it never happened, Jesus never existed. There's too much historical evidence that Jesus indeed did live. And that his ministry created a stir throughout the land of Palestine. And even that he was crucified, put in a tomb, and three days later, the body was missing. Now, believe he resurrected or believe another thing? The fact of the matter is, the body was gone. And hence, this morning, together we go on the case of the missing corpse. What happened to it? Well, the best that the unbelieving world can do is to offer alternative explanations for why the body was missing. So join me today as we explore those alternative explanations to see if they have substance or not. Well, as we begin our journey on the case of the missing corpse this morning, let's start with the most contemporary explanation, the most recent, the most modern, and that is that it's all a result of ancient aliens. This premise had its birth in 1968 when a book was written by Eric von Daniken, Chariots of the God. Immediately, one of the tabloids, the Sunday Mirror, wrote an explanation of what the book was about. It says the author's theory is that in the Earth's remote past, the planet was visited by beings from space who perhaps fathered humanity as we know it. The premise was that even the existence of humanity as a race was all engineered by alien astronauts who came to this planet sometime in the past. And that thought has been developed over time and was developed in his book. Many critics went to work on examining his book, and it was quickly dismissed when they discovered it was filled with half-truths and even quarter-truths and even eighths of truth. And the whole notion died out until 
the 21st century. When the History Channel began to revive the idea with a little program called Ancient Aliens, the series. Holding the same presence, the same premise that, that, that life as we know it is all the result of an alien intrusion onto the planet and a master strategy by them to create a human race. And part of the deception was religion, to worship them as gods. They attacked the two foundations of Christianity. Mary was not the biological mother of Jesus. Rather, the Virgin Mary was abducted by space aliens, and her womb was used to incubate Jesus. As the theory goes, she was the victim of an alien abduction, and they planted a life form in her, an alien life form. And that's why the alien life form, when finally born, was able to do technologically advanced things and to present himself as a god. But what do they have to say about the resurrection? Well, they have many different theories. One goes like this. How would a resurrection be done? Consider a machine that could scan the body of a human into a system, turning the body from matter to energy in the form of light as it does so. The energy would be immense, but that given off by the matter to energy transfer would easily be enough on a bootstrap system. It's rather elementary. Once in the machine's memory, the fatal damage to the body is corrected, and then the body is downloaded back into reality as a living person, using the store power from the disintegration to be able to power the resurrection. Talk about needing some faith. Does anybody understand what that even means? Ancient aliens. A lot of different theories. A lot of different hype. But in an honest investigation into this hype, into this sensationalism, the final road will take us to the place that Robert R. Coghill, an archaeologist with UCLA, came to. And he said, no credible researcher, no credible scientist, no credible scholar gives any support whatsoever to the ancient alien astronaut theories. At the very bottom, there is no foundation. It's all speculation. And the whole theory is purported by those who have written books and stand to profit a lot of money. But the strategy is if you say anything loud enough and long enough, people will begin to believe it. Is it a viable explanation for the missing body? That's for you to decide. The earliest explanation is the most widely accepted explanation. And that explanation we call the heist theory. In this particular explanation of the body missing, that goes back to the very beginning of this entire resurrection experience, is that the disciples of Jesus stole the body from the tomb, hid the body, destroyed the body, and then created this religious system we call Christianity with the myth of the resurrection. Ironically, it was this exact scenario 
that the chief priests and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who drove him to the cross, mind you, tried to prevent desperately. In the book of Matthew, chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, the Bible says that the next day, the one after the preparation day, in other words, the day after Jesus was buried in the tomb, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, who was the governor of the Roman occupation forces. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So they said, so in order for, to, for the tomb to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. In other words, the day after Jesus was put in the tomb, the religious leaders of Israel came and they warned Pilate that that deceiver, that Jesus, he claimed that three days after he was dead, he was going to come back to life. And so Pilate said, very well, take a guard. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and by posting a guard. It wasn't just any seal they put on that stone in front of the tomb. It was the seal of imperial Rome. And woe be to any man. Woe be to any woman. Woe be to any group of conspiracies who would dare to break the imperial seal of the Roman Empire. Their demise would be swift and violent. And it wasn't just any guard they put around that tomb. It was a guard of Roman soldiers. And this time in history, Rome is the super military power of the day. And the foundation of that super military power was the Roman soldier. Who was trained. Who was skilled in the art of killing. And their allegiance to their duty was legend throughout history. So strict was the discipline on the soldiers of the Roman army that Polybius VI, a Roman historian, wrote about some of the penalties of not being a good soldier. In 418, a standard bearer lagging in battle was slain by his own general. In 390, asleep on duty. They found a soldier asleep. What did they do? They wake him up. What did they do? They court-martial him? No, they threw him over the cliff for dereliction of duty. In 252, negligence to duty. That soldier was beaten and reduced in rank. And yet, if we buy into the heist theory, we are to believe that a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors won up the Roman army. Now, if you want a modern-day equivalent to that, let's take myself and Pastor Bob and Pastor Evans, Pastor John, we'll throw in Carol Swinson, and we're going to go to a tomb and steal a body that's guarded by the United States Marines or U.S. Army Rangers or a Navy SEAL team. Now, number one, we're going to go and find them sleeping in the tomb. What's the likelihood of that? Zero. So we're going to have to overpower them with our brute strength and skill. What's the odds of that? Zero. But if you buy into the heights theory, that's exactly what you must believe, that a group of fishermen bested the best soldiers in the world at that time. The Bible records what really happened. What really happened is what God said was going to happen. 
that he trembled the earth and the stone was rolled away and Jesus was resurrected and came forth from the grave. And when he came out, the Roman soldiers, the guards were paralyzed and they could do nothing about it. And so they went and they went not to their, their commanding officer to tell him what happened. They went to the chief priest because they knew they were in trouble. Their lives were at stake. And the chief priests together, those who did everything they could to prevent the resurrection, created the first alternative resurrection explanation. And they said to the soldiers, giving them large sums of money, if anyone comes and asks what happened to the body, you tell them you fell asleep. And don't worry about Pilate. If it gets his attention, we'll go and we'll protect you. And so the Bible says, that from that day on, that was the common explanation for the missing body by the Jews. And it's the most widely accepted one today. But it's inconceivable. There must be another better explanation than aliens from out of space and a group of ragtag disciples overcoming the imperial Roman army. So I guess our journey must continue. The journey, the case of the missing corpse. It was like, oh, so cool and so groovy. <sighs> yes, I did see it, Miss Love, your pastor. And I agree with you, it really is groovy. Well, but you know, we can't get sidetracked. We came here to find your suitcase. No, no, no. We didn't come here to find my suitcase. I'm working on a case. It's the most important case I've ever set out on the case of the missing corpse. Corpse? That's right. Who died? Well, Miss Love, your pastor, it was Jesus some 2,000 years ago. He was crucified. He was buried in a tomb. The tomb was sealed with a huge rock. And Roman soldiers were stationed around it to guard it. And yet, after just three days... Some of Jesus' followers discovered that the stone had been rolled away and that the body was gone. Gone? Gone. What happened? That's what I'm investigating, Miss Love, your pastor. Jenny. My name is Jenny. Please call me Jenny. Hmm, right. Jenny. A groovy. Well, what do you think happened? That's what we're investigating. Hmm. 2,000, for over 2,000 years ago, and for th thousands of years since, Christians of subsequent generations claim that Jesus resurrected, that God miraculously brought him back to life in that tomb, and that the stone was rolled away, and that Jesus walked out on his own. His closest followers, including 11 disciples who had walked with him throughout his entire three-year ministry, 
claimed to have seen him alive. They claimed that they talked to him. They claimed that they touched him and they ate with him. And yet, the notion is so seemingly preposterous that many absolutely refuse to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Jenny, they feel like there just must be some other explanation for the body missing from the tomb. Tomb. That's right. Oh, I wonder what happened. That's what we're trying to find out. Holmes, I think I have an idea. What's that? What if from a far off distant galaxy, aliens came to this earth and they No, no, that no, that's the ancient alien theory. We've already dealt with that. Oh, bummer. Real bummer. Well, let's see, a missing corpse. Um... Holmes, I think I've got it this time. Okay. Jesus' friends came to the tomb, and they were so concerned about him that they wanted to steal away the body. Yes, 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 yes. That's called the heist theory. Covered it, it's another dead end. Oh, major bummer. Hmm. Missing body, missing corpse. Oh, Holmes, I think I really got it this time. Oh, I can't wait for this one, Miss Love. I mean, Jenny. All right, so what are you thinking? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing happened to the body. It stayed exactly where they put it. But that wouldn't be possible because the disciples claimed to have seen the resurrected body. Well, they all saw the resurrected body because it was a hallucination. Ah, so now we're offering a hallucination theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds very interesting, but... Hundreds of people claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. How do we explain that? Oh, that's easy. Easy? Because they all saw the resurrected body because they all had the same hallucination. Oh, so now we're claiming that they all had one mass super hallucination of a resurrected Jesus. Yeah. Well, that's certainly interesting, but Jenny, it's just impossible. It could have been like some big tombstock or something. (laughs) A tombstock. I like that. No, it just couldn't be. It's impossible. I don't understand, Holmes. Why? Well, it's really elementary, my dear. The resurrection could not have been the result of a mass hallucination for at least three reasons. The first being this, that hallucinations are relatively rare. They're not near as frequent as people might think. And when they do occur, they're almost always the result of one of two causes. The first being the use of hallucinogenic drugs. The second, the cause of an extended, an extended, mind you, period of bodily deprivation, where the body is deprived of essentials like water and food and sometimes essential medications that sends people into a hallucinogenic state. But... There's absolutely no history, nor even allegation, that the immediate disciples of Jesus or the subsequent followers of Jesus ever used hallucinogenic drugs in their religious rituals. And since the body had only been in the tomb for three days, that rules out bodily deprivation. It just couldn't have been a long enough time for that to occur. And also... Hallucinations are linked 
to an individual, mind you, not a group, but an individual subconscious. Hallucinations are extremely individualistic and very subjective. In fact, Dr. Gary Collins, who's a renowned author and professor and psychologist, said this, Hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce an hallucination in somebody else. And yet, if we buy into this theory, we're, we're, we, we are challenged to believe that over the period of several weeks, that people from vastly different backgrounds, of vastly different temperaments, all happen to have the same exact hallucination of a resurrected Jesus. Furthermore, Dr. Thomas Thorberg said this, It is absolutely inconceivable that as many as, say, 500 persons of average soundness of mind and temperament in various numbers at all sorts of times and in diverse situations should experience all kinds of sensory impressions, visual, auditory, tactile, and that these manifold experiences should rest entirely upon subjective hallucination. He goes on to say, we say that this is incredible because if such a theory were applied to any other than a supernatural event in history, it would be dismissed forthwith as a ridiculously insufficient explanation. In other words, Jenny, were we to buy into this theory, would be paramount to all of us here today in this worship experiencing agreeing that this is just one big mass hallucination. It's really not happening. We're hallucinating the same songs. We're hallucinating the same characters and even each other. We're hallucinating all the dialogue. It really doesn't exist. It's all one big super hallucination. Don't you see? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, when you put it that way, Holmes, I guess that... And furthermore, Jenny, hallucinations require of people an anticipating spirit of hopeful expectancy. In other words, the hallucinating person has to want something to be true so profoundly, so intensely, that they create in their own subconscious an alternate reality, and they project in their hallucination that which they so deeply desire, and they claim that as their reality. And yet, we know that after the death of Jesus... There was present no such spirit of hopeful expectancy. In fact, after Jesus died, his disciples went into hiding for fear of their own lives. And even the women going to the tomb that day, they were going there to complete the burial ceremony. They were wondering how they were going to get the stone rolled away. There was no spirit of expectancy that they would ever see Jesus alive again. Also, there's a biblical account of where 500 people all at one time witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Now, if we were to buy into this theory, that means that all 500 of these people had the same exact spirit of expectancy at the same time in exactly the same location. Don't you see, Jenny? The whole idea is preposterous. It just can't be. What a major do you want to get that major bummer? Oh, so a missing corpse. Well, are you any closer to solving this mystery corpse? Well, yes, I believe so, Jenny. Okay. But there's one more yeah. resurrection theory that I must first 
investigate. Yeah? But for now, I've investigated three theories that do not provide an adequate explanation for the missing body. Mm-hmm. So that's something, isn't it? Yeah, that's like cool and groovy. It really is groovy. All right, far out, Holmes. Come on, Jenny, let's go. All right, homely. We continue our journey into the case of the missing corpse. Of all the theories, the one that to me I have found the most ludicrous of all alternate explanations for the missing body is historically known as the swoon theory. Now the swoon theory holds that Jesus really didn't die, that he almost died. And when they put his body into the tomb and sealed the tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him. And he was able to get up and roll the stone away and come forth. And then he fabricated his resurrection and created followers who are called Christians. Now, to believe that theory, you have to be absolutely ignorant of what happened to Jesus. The Bible says that on the night he was betrayed in Matthew 26, verse 67, the first thing that happened to him was that he was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And for the rest of the night, they interrogated him, and they beat him. And they pulled out the beard that was on his face, and they pulled out his hair. By the time they took him to Pilate the next day, he was already a swollen, beaten mess. Pilate looked at him, and after examining him, we know the story, that Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. There's nothing that he's done wrong. There's nothing worthy of death. So Pilate strategically, instead of condemning him immediately to death, he sent him away to be scourged, as recorded in John 19, verse 1 through 3. Now understand that scourging was never administered in addition to any other punishment because of the horror of that event in itself. A scourging was performed by a cat of nine tails. A a wooden handle that had nine leather strips. At the end of each one of those leather strips were sewn in pieces of bone, metal, and sharp glass. A Roman soldier would take that whip and he would literally tear into the flesh of his victim. By the time he was done, you could barely recognize that victim as a human being anymore. And so Pilate sent Jesus to get scourged believing that when he came back and he presented Jesus before the people once again, this this mutilated mass of humanity, that the people would have compassion. And their thirsts for death would be satisfied. But we know the story, it wasn't enough. And they continued all the, the more passionately to cry out for his death. So finally, Pilate relented. They put on Jesus, John 19, 17, his cross. And they compelled him to carry it to Golgotha, a place that in Hebrew is called Golgotha, but it's called the place of the skull. Jesus stumbled along the way and had to have help. And finally, 
he got to the place of his crucifixion. And the Bible says in John 19.33 that they came and they crucified him between two thieves and they nailed him to the cross. Now understand, crucifixion was the most horrible and painful means of capital punishment ever devised by mankind. They would nail the wrist into the cross, and they would bend the legs and nail the feet into the cross. When they would raise the cross, it would fall into a hole with a thud, and all the joints of the upper body would pop out of place. Immediately, the weight of the upper body would come down on the lungs, and the only way the victim could get a breath of air was to painfully push up on those nailed feet and relieve the pressure for a moment, grab a sip of air until the pain became so intense they collapsed again. And that horrible, torturous process would continue over hours and hours and hours, and sometimes even over days. When the Roman authorities, who were the only ones who had the authority to crucify anyone, when they figured that the person had suffered enough, the soldiers would break their legs. That would, not, that would disable them from pushing up for another breath of air, and they would die by suffocation. Lord Jesus hung on the cross, having already been scourged, having already been beaten, struggling for air. Finally, it was the day of the preparation for the Passover, and they couldn't leave those men on the cross. So the order was given to break their legs. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. But just to make sure, a Roman soldier took a spear and shoved it up under the ribcage of Jesus. And the Bible says immediately, both blood and water poured out. Medical physicians have examined this evidence, and they have conclusively concluded this, that the only thing that could have caused that to happen was that soldier with his spear actually punctured the heart of Jesus. Oh, listen, make no mistake about it. Roman soldiers knew how to kill and when they put him in that tomb, he was as dead as any dead man could be. I love the response that the famous radio Christian personality and pastor, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, gave to this swoon theory. A letter was sent to him by one of his listeners that read this way, Dear Dr. McGee, Last Sunday, my pastor preached a sermon at church and said that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that it only appeared to die, swooned, and later was revived in the coolness of his tomb. Is that true? I love Dr. McGee's response. He wrote a letter back saying this, Madam, this coming Friday evening, gather some of your fellow congregants from your church at around 2 o'clock a.m., arrive unannounced at your pastor's home, knock on the door, and when he answers, take him prisoner, hog time, and then take him back to the fellowship hall of the church. When you get him there, for the rest of the early morning hours, slap him and beat him with your fists. Pull the hair out of his head and his beard if he has one. At around 6 a.m., take your pastor out back of the church, rip his jacket and shirt off him, and have a couple of your strongest male congregants take a cat of nine tails with pieces of sharp bone, metal, and glass sewn into the ends, and whip your pastor with it 40 times, save one, as hard as they can possibly whip him. After you finish scourging him, have someone weave a crown of long thorns and then press it deeply into your pastor's head. Then put a heavy railroad tie on his shoulders and make him drag it around the churchyard for an hour or so. And about 9 a.m., lay your pastor on his cross and drive spikes through both his hands and his feet. 
raise the cross up into the air. Let it drop into the hole with a thud, causing your pastor's joints to pop out of place. And let him hang under the hot sun for the next six hours, struggling for air without any food or water. Finally, he concludes, after the six hours are up, have one of your men take a long, sharp spear, shove it up under your pastor's ribs and into his heart. Then take him down from the cross and put him in a cool tomb. Let me know how it turns out. <laughs> Sincerely, Dr. McGee. As humorous as it is, that really depicts the foolishness of the swoon theory. To believe that, you don't have not only not a biblical understanding of what happened to Jesus, you don't have a historical understanding of what Rome did to people when they wanted to crucify them. When they wanted them dead, mark it down. They were dead. The truth of the matter is Jesus went in dead. But through the power and omnipotence of God, he came back to life. And he came out of that tomb. And today he's alive. He's triumphed over death. Here's what I want you to take home this Easter Sunday morning. That which we believe, that what we have embraced for over 2,000 years, is not blind faith. It is built with credible evidence. And although other alternative theories have been offered for what happened to the missing body, none of them hold the weight of historical evidence and none of them eclipse the blessed story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your faith is not blind faith. It's substance faith. No other explanation can explain the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to change lives and to literally split all human history into 2 B.C. and A.D. Oh, the Lamb has overcome. Now, the world in the majority of numbers, will continue to reject that. The Bible says that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's what? The power of God. We know it's power. We know it's strength. We know it's assurance. It's affirmation. Jesus himself said in John 5.24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And that is the promise to every man, every woman here this morning who has put his or her faith in the cross and in Jesus' resurrection. Now those of us who have accepted that gift and believe that, that was not a result of our wisdom. That was not a result of our superiority over other people. It was a result of our tremendous good fortune. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. In other words, Jesus said, there's no one really out seeking me. There's no one out there wise enough to know they need me. The truth of the matter is, those who ultimately come to faith in me were drawn to me by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And all we did was responded to the opportunity. And today, you may be present, and you've never responded to that opportunity. Today, you're still hoping that somehow you're going to live a good enough life to appease God, and he's going to allow you into his eternal kingdom. Well, if it could be done that way, Jesus never needed to die on the cross, and he certainly didn't need to be resurrected from the tomb. But the truth of the matter is that right now, God is active in your soul. God is active in your spirit. And it's not by coincidence. It's not just because a friend invited you to this service today. It's not because a family member encouraged you to come. You're here today because God was active in your life, drawing you to this place so that you can hear this message. Romans 10, verse 8 and 9 says this. The word is near you. Look what it says. It's in your mouth. Right now, it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming to you. Right now, God is at work bearing witness with your soul that the words we have spoken today are true. And now, decision time. It goes on to say, if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, that there is no other way back to the Father. There is no way to achieve forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the only way through the power of his resurrection. And it says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Look what it promises. You will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of your own sinfulness. Saved from a hopeless, eternal destination of separation with God. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. But right now, right here, God wants to give it. Let's bow our heads. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, why would you not do it right now? What would keep you from, in faith, Trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right now, you know who you are. And you know that God is stirring your heart right now. Don't find the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. If you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, don't harden your heart. But open your heart to him. Right now, would you receive Christ through a simple act of faith? A simple act of prayer that maybe goes like this, and you can use these words if you want. God, I confess to you that I need your forgiveness. I know that I've offended your word. I know I haven't lived for you the way you've wanted me to. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I get it now, God. That's why you sent Jesus. Because you knew there's nothing I could do about my own sinfulness. So you sent Jesus as a perfect sacrifice on the cross to die for my sin. And through the power of the resurrection, you have given him the authority to forgive sin. And so Jesus, right now, right here, I'm asking you to do that in my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, pay my sin debt with your blood. Today, right now, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Jesus, today, I receive you as my eternal Savior. 
Ah, for those of you who humbled yourself in that way. The Bible says this in 1 John 5, 13. These things I write unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Go ahead and look up at me again. If you trusted Christ this morning, I'm going to ask you to do one thing before you leave the service, and that is to take that connection card that you were given in your bulletin and make sure all the information about yourself is accurate on the front. And there's a box that you can check says, my decision today. And the first box to check says, I blank trusted Christ as my Savior. Put your name there. And before you leave, drop that card off in one of the kiosks or at one of the tables. And we're going to thank God for the decision you made. And we're going to send you a little booklet entitled, You Can Be Sure. And it will help you to further understand the literal miracle that God just performed in your life. Now, this service is not only an Easter presentation. This is a worship service. It's not just about getting, it's about giving. In a moment, we're going to give God our collective praise. But right now, our ushers are going to take their place, and we're going to give everyone an opportunity to give God a sacrificial gift. God gave the first gift. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. If you don't have time to prepare your gift today before the offering plate passes, you can drop it off in one of the offering kiosks. Father, bless this offering. Bless our gifts. God, we give them from hearts of love and thanksgiving. Use them powerfully for the kingdom of Christ. And our prayer is in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You can leave today with this assurance. Jesus is alive.